Good morning, everybody. It is June 17th, 2022, and it is about 11 a.m. on the East Coast. So if you're joining us live on Facebook, welcome. If you're listening to us on the podcast, uh, hi, nice to have you back with us. Um, so Tales from the Heart is a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And if you follow us, you know that we jump around on topics. And today we are actually going to be speaking with Ed Jackson, who is an HCM warrior and patient. And we're going to be discussing a number of aspects of his experience with HCM. Um, if you are interested in participating in a Share Your Story program, please go to our website at 4hcm.org and you can put in an inquiry through our volunteer system to be part of the Share Your Story program. So why is sharing our story so important? Because there's a lot of commonality that is hidden behind the veil of normalcy. And today, Ed and I are gonna talk about his diagnostic journey and some aspects of his HCM care that I think will resonate with a lot of you. So I hope you uh, join into the conversation, give us some of your experiences and feedback if you're joining us live on Facebook. And with that, I welcome Ed Jackson to the podcast. So good morning, Ed. Good morning, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And for those of you who are watching on Facebook, he's got a really cute dog behind him. If you're watching on a podcast or listening on a podcast, you can't see the cute dog. So you're missing dog action. So Ed, the first time we spoke was way back in 2018, which seems like a lifetime ago with everything that's happened in the past two and a half years. So let's talk about 2018. What was happening? What were you feeling and what, what happened? Oh, geez. 2018, I was uh, dealing with a lot of symptoms, um, racing heart and arrhythmias and shortness of breath and dizziness. And eventually um, I was during a health screening at work. Uh, they detected a heart murmur. So my doctor ordered a echocardiogram and then it was discovered that I had HCM. So that's how I was diagnosed. So that gives you an answer. But prior to 2018, were you noticing anything? Did you have other conversations with healthcare providers that may have given you a different answer for what was going on with you? Yes. So we all know HCM is tough to diagnose and it was tough in my, in my case. And for me, my doctor, you know, more or less blamed it on anxiety. So, uh, you know, the HCM symptoms can sometimes be masked as anxiety. It's not hard to imagine racing hard and shortness of breath and chest pains, you know, are also similar to anxiety symptoms. So that's basically what I was diagnosed with. So that was like 2016, they said anxiety. Yes. 2018, oh, there's a murmur, hypertrophic yes. cardiomyopathy. And was it clearer after your HCM diagnosis that the original diagnosis of anxiety may not have been 100% accurate? Yes, definitely. And uh, I'm sure it's, it's, it's the same story with a lot of HCM patients. It's a long road to diagnosis. Anxiety is one of our most common misdiagnoses ahead of time. But I, I want to kind of stay in that anxiety moment for just a second because the diagnosis of HCM itself can invoke and provoke anxiety among HCM patients. 
So did you notice any real anxiety after your diagnosis? And was it different than what they had told you was anxiety before? Yes, it's different because when you're first diagnosed, it's, it's almost like a relief because most HCM patients know that there's something wrong with them. They just can't pinpoint it. However, when you're diagnosed, yeah, now you're faced with living with a chronic disease that has its own issues. So it's, it is another form of anxiety it's, and, and, and it's, it's different, but it's, it's, it is anxiety producing. I think people get confused with the two. Well, they told me I had anxiety, but I don't because I have HCM, but now I'm very anxious because I have HCM and they can both be true that the one was a, a mislabeling and the other is actually happening to you. So I just want to validate people out there who were told that it was in their head, not in their heart, found out that it was in their heart and now they're in their head. A hundred thousand percent. I mean, that summarizes it perfectly. You know, when I was, when I was first diagnosed, uh, my risk of sudden cardiac arrest was, was pegged at 10%. So for a young guy to know walking around that you have a 10% chance, this is pre uh, treatment Mm -hmm. with any medication. My first meeting, you know, 10% chance. And this was with a local cardiologist who gave you these numbers. That was with my, um, uh, UPenn cardiologist. Okay. Your UPenn cardiologist. So, okay, your first center of excellence. Yes. And so if that doesn't cause anxiety, I don't know what will. So let's take this back a step. So you were diagnosed at a local hospital and you live on the East coast, Northern East coast, um, central East coast, actually. Um, and tell us, tell us about your local cardiologist. Nice guy, right? Great guy. Really nice guy. Um, great reviews. Uh, I mean, doctor in his fifties or sixties, excellent, excellent cardiologist. However, he basically, he, he, he had a hard time. He had a hard time telling me my diagnosis because he had never seen a patient with a gradient as big as mine. Um, so, you know, he was very honest and basically I needed to see treatment elsewhere. You know, sometimes your local cardiologist can be very nice. You can have a great relationship with them. They can be a great doctor. But when it comes to HCM, you really need to see a specialist because your typical cardiologist just doesn't deal with a lot of HCM patients, you know, the bulk of their, the bulk of their uh, patients. Practice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this great guy um, says you might need to go off someplace else and have surgery. And you went to the internet and what did you find? We found uh, the HCM found that, you know, uh, association on Facebook, which was, uh, you know, a lifeline because when you're first diagnosed, you know, you have all these thoughts going through your head. I mean, it's, it's, it just rocks your world and you need a support. You need some fun. You need some kind of support and information. So uh, thank God I found the HCMA which, you know, led me to talking to you and which eventually led me to UPenn Center of Excellence. And once you got there, you're hearing about, okay, you might be at high risk for cardiac arrest. So anybody listening is like, well, he immediately ran out and got an implantable defibrillator, of course. But no, HCM is not that easy because Ed looked in the mirror and said, I'm fine. I don't need this. That's a big step. And you didn't do it, did you? 
I did not do it. The doctors initially recommended that I have an ICD. You know, they did leave it up to me. They, it was my decision. Um, I was hesitant to have an implantable. I just, most people just don't want a device implanted in their body. That's just, it's just that simple. You don't want surgery. And at, to that point, I had had arrhythmias, uh, a lot of arrhythmias, but they were all um, PVCs or um, did I say that Premature right? ventricular contractions. Yes, PVCs. Benign, so, benign arrhythmias for anybody who wants more information on arrhythmias. Exactly. Go back a few episodes ago and we did our whole talk on this. So programming note, sorry. Go ahead, Ed. So you were having PVCs and they weren't dangerous arrhythmias. Exactly. And so I was... I, I didn't want it, even though my risk was at 10% at the time, I thought I would be okay without one. Fast forward to 2020, and I had a run of ventricular tachycardia, which scared the living daylights out of me. And as soon as I had that run, easiest decision I ever made, scheduled the surgery. And had and the how surgery. Is, how is life with the device? I don't even know it's there. You, you, you just get used to it after time. And it, it, I don't ever think about it. And, and unless I'm looking in the mirror and I see the scar, I don't even think about it. And it's just peace of mind. As soon as I had the surgery, I felt like a weight was lifted because I, I should have had it sooner. So now that the device is in and it's set in your body and you're healed from the actual surgery, when you feel your heart acting up or giving you some arrhythmia, PVCs or otherwise, what crosses your mind? I, I don't worry about it. I, it's, it's just having protection. It doesn't, you know, it's not like it was before when you have a run and you're like, oh my God, is this it? Um, it's, I, it's peace of mind. And I don't even, I don't even think about it. So, Let's pivot a little bit here. The theme of our month is um, exercise and HCM. So let's talk a little bit about what your exercise life looked like 2016, 17, 18, working into the diagnosis. What was exercise? Well, I, I, I did work out hard. I'm, I've always worked out pre-diagnosis. And so I was working out hard pre-diagnosis. However, it was getting harder and harder and harder to work out. And, you know, you look back and you say, there's so many red flags. Why would you continue to work out? You know, you're having shortness of breath and dizziness, but it's just the little tricks you tell yourself. Well, I'm, maybe I'm just overweight or it's just I'm stressed and it's my anxiety or my high blood pressure. You know, you don't, looking back, it, it, it seems silly that I was working out when I felt so bad. And it's just, it's, it's hard to explain because it is progressive. So it's slowly, you know, for me, it slowly got a little worse. And, um, but looking back, you just say to yourself, my God, how, why was I working out like that when I felt bad? So when we talked earlier, you said coming into the diagnosis, you had done exercise a lot, but then vacuuming became exercise. Yes. So when it got to the point where I was diagnosed and my gradient, uh, I think my initial, I think Sorry. my initial gradient was pegged at 140 or I forget what it, it was so high initially. So at that point, 
exercise was just unattainable at that point. I, I mean, just, just vacuuming would, would wipe me out, you know, just, uh, trying to change the sheets was, was an exercise. And things slowly got more difficult. So when you went to the center of excellence, we're going to get back to the exercise theme when we talk about what happened next. Mm-hmm. Um, so you go to a center of excellence and you get evaluated. They tell you you should have an ICD and you're like, nah, we'll wait on that a little while. And that took a little bit, but they also offered you an opportunity to learn about a clinical trial. And tell me a little bit about what, and I want to take like 10 steps back here. So you're not feeling well, you go to a center, they say, Hey, there's these things called clinical trials. And what was it that made you say, yes, I want to learn more about it. And let's just kind of take it in the steps that you process the information. So why, why did you want to even learn about it? Uh, I, I, well, for one, I felt so bad and I knew, you know, the, there were some drugs out there that, that can help. They can help with the symptoms. Um, and I felt so bad. And when you start reading about this drug and you realize it's the first drug in its class and it actually works at the, the molecular level or the, you know, and, and, and so when reading about it, talking it over with the doctors, talking it over with, with you and HCM people, you know, group members, it just made it, it made it an easier decision. So it's, it's definitely a decision that doesn't come easy because I had to think long and hard about joining this drug trial. I mean, especially with the warnings of heart failure and, you know, the warnings about your ejection fraction getting too low, all that is very worrisome. But when you feel that bad, it's, it, it gives you that little push to, to try something different. So you tried, um, well, let, let's, let's go in the steps. So you thought I listened, you listened, you did your research and you said, yeah, I'm going to try this. Do you think joining a clinical trial required any bravery? I don't, uh, I don't consider, I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm brave for doing this, but it's, it's a tough decision. It's definitely a hard decision. It takes well, a I'm lot. I'm going to say, I think it takes bravery. I've been in a clinical trial. You don't know what's going to happen. It's a trial. Mm-hmm. And it takes a little bit of faith, uh, a little bit of luck, maybe, and a little bit of bravery to be aligned with a good clinical trial and, and take that step. And I just, I want to acknowledge that for everybody who says yes to a clinical trial. We are ourselves putting ourselves out there and saying, I'm going to try, maybe it'll help me, maybe it won't, but it'll definitely help somebody else because if it's a positive, yay, we have a positive trial. If it's a negative, we will abandon this thought process and head to another one. So it, I think joining clinical trials is a brave thing. So I think you're brave. Thank you. Okay. So we've got, we've got the bravery moment. We sign the paper and let's just talk about the, the processes. So you were in the Explorer trial. 
So we can say that. Um, it's a closed trial, so we're happy to talk about it after the conclusion of the trial. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're not going to talk about any other trials that he may or may not be in. We're sticking on Explorer today. So you sign up, you go in for your pre-testing. What was the process like to get onboarded to a clinical trial? Uh, you have to meet with the clinical coordinator. You, you know, you meet with the cardiologist, uh, review all your health data. Uh, there is, I mean, there's, and you know, this, this trial in particular, there's a lot of follow-up appointments, a lot of echocardiograms. So, um, you know, and, and you have to make, you have to meet the criteria. Yeah. You know, I, I know this, you have to be obstructed. So I, I, luckily I fit the criteria. Um, and, and I got lucky too, because I was diagnosed in 2018. I, I mean, I got diagnosed right at the right time. I, it sounds weird saying that, but I, I got so, so fortunate to get diagnosed when I did. I actually remember speaking to you originally and going, you know, your timing's pretty good. There's some stuff going on right now. You might want to, you might want to check it out. And yeah. that happened. So you talk to the clinical coordinator, there's some blood work, EKGs, echoes, and you had to make a number of trips back and forth to the center. How often did you have to go back and was it inconvenient? So it was pretty frequent. I think there, at first there was a few, I think it was after, it was a couple of weeks. I had, to, I had to have follow-ups every two weeks and then it became every month. Uh, I'm very fortunate. My employer was hundred percent supportive of me, you know, and, and I, that, I think that's key. And, and I, I'm very fortunate because I, I did have to take a lot of sick time. Um, so that is one issue facing patients, you know, is you're going to have to take some, you're going to have to take sick time. And, and we, and we did talk about this earlier, how, how actually wonderful your employer was um, by, Excellent. by, I know it sounds silly, but by following the rules that were established through the Americans with Disabilities Act and following, you know, just good employment practices, they were good to you. And now you are even more committed to them. Absolutely. And I'll I think that's great. It's, it's, I work at the Health and Safety Department at the University of Delaware. And, you know, I'd like to give a shout out to, to my supervisors and all my coworkers, they've, they've been super supportive and I, I couldn't ask for a better group of people. So I'm really lucky. Well, we thank the University of Delaware for being a good employer and being compassionate and reasonable when somebody's dealing with an unfortunate diagnosis and, and a difficult path. So yeah. bravo and, University of Delaware. And I had to file for FMLA in uh, 2019. So I had to, have, I could not, at that point, I was missing work due to sick days, you know, just not feeling good at one point. And so I, uh, I did have to have a reduced work schedule. So it got to that point. Mm, and they were, they were accommodating. So that's fantastic. And we'll get to the conclusion of, and where are we today moment uh, when we, when we get a little further here, but fantastic for them to have, have provided that. So you're in the trial, you're going back and forth, your employer's being um, accommodating, um, and you do the whole trial. You finish the entire trial, and you 
we'll say this because Mavic Hampton is the study that we were talking about. So it's Explorer, which was looking at MAVA and obstructed patients, now known as CAMSIOS, and is now available to everybody um, because it has been FDA approved and you are currently on the medication. And I want to talk about how you're feeling today. Yeah, I, I feel, uh, I feel good. Um, I feel much better. You know, I, I feel it's, it's night and day how I feel. I, I don't, I, I almost feel bad saying that because I know everybody's results are different. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to gloat and, but I do feel much better. I know everybody's results are different, um, but it's made a, it's made a huge impact in my life. I, you know, and there's a lot of times I don't even think about my heart now. Now, again, I, I feel bad saying, I almost don't want to say that, but everybody's results are different. Um, but I do feel a lot better, um, overall. And I'm, you know, my, uh, arrhythmias have gone down in frequency. Um, I don't have the shortness of breath like I used to. So I, I do feel much better. So let's talk a little bit about where you were and where you are. So you had a pretty high gradient. Your wall measurements were kind of in the average HCM range, you know, the 2.0-ish area, I believe, um, 1.82. Yeah. Um, your obstruction was pretty high. You were over, well over 50. I think you were over a hundred. Um, and your symptoms as you were reporting them were very much tied to the obstruction. That was the driver of the symptoms, shortness of breath with exercise, with exertion, um, chest pressure. They were very common obstruction symptoms. And how frequently are you experiencing that type of symptom today? Uh, I don't experience um, minimal dizziness right now. I mean, before every day was filled with dizziness. Um, I don't have chest pains right now. I, I don't have chest pains. Um, minimal arrhythmias compared to, you know, before. Um, it, it's, it's almost like night and day for me. So as a, a cautionary note here, there is not a lot of data about arrhythmias and Mavicampton or Campsios yet. We don't know what the global response is going to be there, but it's an antidotal one-off that you're noticing less right now. So that's important. Um, and I'm sure makes you feel a lot better. A, the, the ICD is there, but there's less arrhythmias. So that's making you feel better. What are you able to do in terms of exercise today? Uh, so I can ride an exercise bike. I ride a, a you know, we, I have a mountain bike. I, I don't do any hard trails or anything, but I can ride bike around. I can lift, I can uh, go to the gym and lift weights. Um, I can go hiking. Um, my favorite activity is kayak fishing. I'm able to do that again. Um, and the main thing with me is, uh, you just have to be careful with, you know, with your intensity. I don't, I don't, I don't push myself too hard and uh, you have to be, you have to be uh, mindful if you're lifting weights of how much rest you take. I don't, you know, I don't work out like I used to. I take long rests when I, when I work out, 
So you have to, yeah, I, I am able to exercise, but I'm, I'm, I'm safe the way I do it. So you went from intense exercise to vacuuming being exercise to moderate exercise on a regular basis. And you're, you're back. Now I see this is Lisa's editorial comment. Like I put little asterisks all over this one. You see people who get diagnosed with HCM and they'll report their life before HCM and then they'll report a decline in their functional capacity. And then we try to kind of hold on to what they've got left. That's what we've been doing other than, you know, surgery and alcohol ablation, which can get rid of obstruction as well. And then you see improvement again. What you're explaining is not, it's not a roller coaster. It was getting bad and you're now getting better and you're back up to almost where you were before your diagnosis, but you still have HCM, but you're able to be functional. Yes. That's pretty intense. It, it, it is. It's amazing. I mean, one of the, yeah, one of the, when you're, when you're initially diagnosed with HCM, like you said, a lot of people had past lives where they were very active. Yeah. So the thought of not being able to do your activities anymore, it's, it's devastating. It's a huge loss. And so able to do this now, it's incredible. So what's going on with work now? What are you able to do for work? I, I work full time. I work five days a week. Um, you know, just like I used to, uh, I have full clearance. I mean, I, I, there's, I don't have any restrictions at work basically. So your employer who followed the Americans with Disabilities Act and followed FMLA to the T and gave you the time to do what needed to be done is now benefiting because you are now back in full-time capacity and doubly committed to a company who took care of you when you needed taken care of. Yes. hundred percent. Absolutely. Employers out there. Are you listening? It works. Use the system. We don't want to have accommodations, but when we need them, if you give them, you get a lot back. And, and I will say this too, um, filling out, uh, declaring FMLA doing, just doing that is very stressful because you're worried, you're worried about your career. You're worried about how are people going to respond to you? Are people going to think that you're faking it? There's so much stress just declaring that FMLA. Uh, that's, you know, I'm just, I'm glad it all worked out because it did. I am too. And as some may know, I am a former human resource manager. <laughs> so I, uh, I know how the rules are supposed to be applied. And I also know how some employers maybe not follow the rules so well. So I encourage all employers to follow the rules. And this is the way it's supposed to work. We take care of each other when we have to. And then your employees come back very happy and willing to contribute back. So I think that's really, really important. So I want to take another little bit of a turn here as, you know, an HCM patient's experience is varied and we all come from our own perspectives. So you came out of a community cardiology practice in 2018, found the HCMA and found a center of excellence. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between community-based care for HCM and center of excellence level care in terms of knowledge, ability, and services? Yes, uh, it's it's a uh, it's a big difference. My my local cardiologist, like I said, he was a great, experienced cardiologist, and and I thought that my local uh, hospital group was top notch, and and it, it is. It, they are it's a good group. When I went to a center of excellence for the first time at UPenn, I was blown away at the difference and just how how they excel, how you know, UPenn Center of Excellence has a, a center for inherited cardiac disease. That's all they deal with is, is, is HCM patients. So it's, it's, it's night and day. And if you're diagnosed with HCM, yeah, I, I definitely recommend seeing a, a center of excellence. It's, it's a whole different level of care because they, they're specialists and your typical cardiologist, even if he's very qualified, even if he's a family friend, or even if he's nice, you know, most likely he's not as, he doesn't specialize in, or he or she doesn't specialize in, in HCM. So I, I, I can't recommend enough. Go into it. No, and even if he's a she. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, there are great individual cardiologists all over this country and, and beyond. Um, but if they don't have specialized training or experience in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they're often likely to miss um, new advances or subtle signs of, you know, problem uh, in HCM. They don't appreciate every aspect and that's okay. They don't have to, as long as they're willing to provide you with local care while working in concert with your center of excellence. Um, that's why we've created HCM Academy. So we can teach local and community cardiologists a little bit more about HCM and then create best practices on how they can work with a center for co-managed care. So it's, it's, it works. Uh, it it works. And I still, and I still stay in touch with my local cardiologist every now and then just to fill him in with where I'm at. He's very, very happy and excited with, uh, with everything going on. So the other thing I wanted to just kind of lean into today is the concept of chronic disease management. And yes, you're feeling better now. And we're really happy for that. You're, you're taking a, a medication that's working for you at the moment. Yay, let's hope it lasts for a really, really long time. But you have a chronic illness. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about what that means in today's world. What, what does it mean to you to be somebody with a chronic illness? Uh, you know, the... the I'm, and I'm, I'm fortunate because I'm, I'm feeling better, but there is a lot of uncertainty when you have a chronic illness, especially like HCM. Um, and so it's, it's adjusting your life. It's, 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 it's dealing with, you know, loss of some function. It's dealing with change and it's, and it's, it's dealing with anxiety, you know, so there's, there's a lot that goes along with living with a chronic disease and it's, it's the fear of the unknown also. And, and you know, you're going to have, you, you can't get rid of it. You have it for the rest of your life. So that you do. do you think about it in terms of physical function? Do you think about it in life planning, retirement planning, financial, what, what parts of your life does chronic disease impact? Well, it, it, impacts all of it, honestly. I mean, life planning, um, 
you know, just thinking about moving, you know, say I wanted to move somewhere. Well, I'm, 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 fit, I'm attached to UPenn now. You know, I, I can't imagine being too far out of this area. I mean, for one thing, you know, the, the thought of living in a very, you know, I, I would love to live in the country somewhere when you think about it, but the thought of me being an hour or two hours from medical care, well, that affects, that, that's going to affect me. That's going to affect my planning of where I live. You know, I, I have to be close to a, to a good hospital. So that's, that's one thing, um, you know, family planning, you have to think about, you know, do you want to have kids? I mean, I don't have children, but you know, it's a, it's a question you have to ask yourself, you know, because you could potentially, it's a genetic disease. So your children could inherit it. There's a lot of questions. Um, you know, you have to have access to good medical care. So it does impact a lot, a lot of a lot of parts of your life. We're going to start leaning in a little bit more on um, doing some Medicare education and planning because people who have private insurance don't really know what to expect when they get to that Medicare age and the rule book changes and access changes and things change. So when you have a chronic illness, you really need to start thinking about that earlier and making those plans accordingly. So you can maintain your good healthcare coverage and not find out that all of a sudden, because you checked a box somewhere, you don't have that access anymore. So we need to, to help people understand that process as well and make it less anxiety provoking. Um, so when you're planning a vacation, do you think about your, your HCM and do you plan vacations around centers or how does that work? So well, you know, because of COVID, I mean, pre- previous to um, my diagnosis, I love to travel. I mean, we, we traveled to Europe a few times, traveled, you know, through Central America and Mexico. And uh, so now, you know, it's, I have to ask myself, you know, would I go to those places now when I travel through Central America? You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tough decision. I'm not sure if I would be comfortable going to some places in the world right now, knowing, you know, knowing the, the condition I have. Um, so, I, you know, I've just traveled locally since COVID. We have a camper, so uh, we've been camping out a lot. So I'm fortunate in that respect, uh, just locally camping. But I haven't done any big trips, honestly, since my diagnosis. Okay. Um, but now I could start to, to plan, you know, bigger trips. I'd love to get back to Europe, so. So would I. Yeah. Someday we'll all get back out there, but soon I hope. So it it impacts everything you think about. Where am I going to go? How far can I be away? What's my emergency action plan? And I think there's a great deal just, just by talking about it. Like there's, there's this whole subplot going on in the back of people's minds when you have a chronic illness. So work schedule, you know, social activities, the news, the regular stressors of life, they're all there. And then you're going, and if I needed to rush to the hospital right away, I'm three hours away. And what was that I felt earlier? And do I need, are my prescriptions filled? Do I need to get some refills on that? Do I need to call some? There's all this other noise that goes on related to managing. It's like almost managing like a part-time job. (laughs) It requires your attention whether you want it to or not. And um, 
and, and just traveling, even for a non-HCM patient, is stressful. There's a lot of stress involved with traveling. So when you throw a chronic disease on top of that, it's it's 10 times as stressful. And, you know, I remember doing some trips a year or two before uh, my diagnosis, and I, I was extremely stressed out on my travels. And I didn't understand. I didn't know why I felt the way I did. But looking back, it makes sense. Well... I always found that when I flew, when I had HCM, I would get down out of the plane and it was, it was rough for an hour or so because of the pressure shifts. And I never really appreciated it until I'm post-transplant and I can get off a plane and I don't feel that. And I'm like, oh, I guess that was a symptom too. <laughs> what you take to be normal isn't always normal. Yeah. It's incredible what you can get used to and what you can call normal. Uh, looking back, I'm, I'm shocked. Mm, me too. So Diane has asked a question that I'll just address. I don't know that I fully understand your question, Diane. Um, she says HCM post myectomy and her heart rate went down to the forties with a pacemaker. Do all COEs do both? Um, I don't quite understand the question. Um, not everybody who has a myectomy gets a pacemaker. Um, it's actually not common. It's less than 10%. Um, so I'm not 100% sure what the question really is. Uh, as long as you have a backup pacer, if you're going into the 40s, your backup pacer will, will bring the heart rate back up. Um, I would talk to your center about that. Do all centers of excellence perform myectomies? No. Um, some of them refer out. Do all of them have the capacity to implant defibrillators and pacemakers? Yes. Um, so I think I answered your question, but if I didn't, hit me back. Um, and Diane other Diane, we have two Dianes, um, two Dianesses actually. Um, now you're living in Spain and you don't have a contingency plan. Girlfriend, we need to create a contingency plan. Um, you know, maybe we should set up a time to talk and um, we do have some contacts out of the country and maybe we can find somebody at least in country in case there's something that you need. So set up an appointment and we'll see what resources we can identify for you. So that would be great. Okay, so Ed, you did a trial. You know, I think you're brave for doing it. And now you're on the drug and you're living your life on a drug that you started a trial for. Um, how does it feel to have gone from a concept drug to something that's become part of your everyday? I've never had that experience. Most drug trials I were in, it never came to be. So what's it like? Oh, I... I, I'm just very fortunate. You just feel very, very lucky. Like I, I, you know, you called me brave and, you know, the, the doctors at UPenn have thanked me, you know, for joining this trial, but when you're receiving the benefits of it, you just feel lucky. You know, that I, I just feel fortunate. I, I, I can't say that enough. I mean, just how fortunate I feel to be at the right place at the right time and to, to be able to, to be one of only a few hundred you know, or I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how many people were in the trial actually, but just to be a small, one of a small number of people to be able to be on this medicine initially, it's a, uh, it's life-changing and, um, you know, you just, you just feel amazingly lucky and blessed. So you bring up a good point. Um, and I want to just dive into it for a minute that you are one of only a few hundred people who've ever taken the drug. Um, so far. And 
with a lot of cautious enthusiasm, I say the data indicates that about a third of people will be responders and have a positive impact. A third. Not bad. Wish it was more. Maybe we'll figure out how to refine it to pick patients better to know who will respond best. Um, And we're all still learning together. So while certain trials maintain and they're going on, there is clinical utilization of this drug. I would really caution everybody who is considering starting a brand new drug that only a couple hundred people have been on. And it's agnostic to the drug. Okay. Make sure you're going to a top level center, make sure their imaging is stellar because imaging is everything in the, in this particular drug. Um, and you want to make sure that you're, you've been selected appropriately for the therapy. Um, there might be some physicians who don't do large volume HCM and are trying to get into the game a little bit here with a new drug. I would caution against that. I would caution that you should be evaluated and loaded for drug at a center of excellence and then managed at home. This is, in my view, the safest way to do this. The REMS basically say this, but there's some room for other physicians to become qualified to prescribe under the FDA's language. I would just offer a little bit of uh, a suggestion for caution and that center of excellence care matters for patient selection. And if you want to have the highest likelihood of being in that one third of responders, getting an evaluation by a center is probably a good idea. And now I want to talk about another part of this. And because Ed, you were in the clinical trial, your experience with this part is going to be a little bit different. Um, And that's the reimbursement issue. This whole issue is not lost on us and the importance of reimbursement for a new drug. Um, We know it's got a big price tag. We also know that there's patient assistance programs for the privately insured. We know that there are Medicaid patients who are going to be able to get it soon. And we know Medicare has its caps and you're going to cap out on Medicare, which makes it cost prohibitive for some. Um, After copays, deductibles, donut hole, you're talking about $400 a month out of pocket. And that's just not affordable for everybody. So this is my little pitch that we all need to use our voices to make changes to healthcare. You're going to start seeing a lot more commercials on TV about PBMs and fighting back against them because they're gouging patients. And I'm going to put some educational materials up about what a PBM is and how sick people end up paying for healthcare for others through this crazy system that we've decided to be legal. And if you don't understand what a PBM system is, stay tuned. I'm going to help you get educated on that. But basically, it doesn't do anything to help us, and it just drives the prices of drugs up, and people don't even know that it exists typically. So we have to make sure that there's a clear pathway for patients to get drugs that are affordable, and we need to continue the research to make sure that the drug is safe, no matter what the drug is, and we have to work together as a community to make the changes that we need to have happen. So you're going to hear a lot more about that from the HCMA and some of the partners that we're working with. So I'll get off my soapbox now about reimbursement and, and cost, um, but it's an important issue and we're, we are going to be taking a lot of time on that. So Ed, have you worried about, will you be able to maintain this drug 
if the patient assistance program disappeared? Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's, it's definitely a little worrisome. I'm not trying to think that far down the road, but hopefully, um, hopefully over the, you know, I know you've done a lot of work behind the scenes, so hopefully down the road, it's not even an issue, but, and over time, you know, with competition, maybe the price will come down also. That's what we can hope for. That's certainly what we can hope for. Um, I have another question here from Lorianne, um, one of my favorite names. That was my sister's name, but spelled different. Um, ha- are they starting soon tests for pediatric HCM? I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about the clinical trial, Lorianne, and that's probably not going to happen until maybe first quarter of next year, if I had to guess. Um, but they know that we're asking for it. They know we need to do it. And we're okay. <laughs> Your dog looks excited back there. Yeah, she was. She's ready to go for a walk. She just went upstairs. Oh, okay. That was funny. Um, Okay. So yes, you have a seven-year-old with HCM. Okay. So clinical trials have not been started yet. Let's learn a little bit more about the adults before we try it on the little ones. Um, It's it's definitely coming, but um, you need a little bit more caution there. A little bit more caution. So um, they'll, they'll hopefully be in the next couple of months. Ed, what else can you tell us about your HCM experience? We talked about work. We talked about exercise. We talked about drug trials. What else? Uh, I guess just, uh, you know, just the mental aspect of just living with a chronic disease. It's, um, it's just life-changing. You know, when you get that diagnosis, your, your life's altered, you know, for forever. And it's just, it's just one people to know, you know, when, when, you know, lots of people have different chronic diseases and, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it can be stressful and it, and you need a lot of support also. That's another thing too, is thank God I've had a lot of support from my wife and family. And so that's, that's very huge too with HCM patients is the support system because you hear from some patients uh, and I, and I felt bad too, you know, when you're, you complain so much about how you feel to your loved ones and it's, it takes a toll on them also. So it's, you have to be mindful of who you're living with and the burden that you place on them because they're dealing with it also. So you're dealing with the physical symptoms, but your support group is dealing with it also. So that's a big part of it. And I was very fortunate, you know, that I had a lot of support with my wife and family. So that, that's a big thing. That's a really good topic to, to spend a minute or two on here. Um, last week I was at a meeting in DC um, and it was different patients with different issues. And one of the patients was explaining her interaction with her doctor and she used the word complain. I complained about this. I complained about that. Now let's, let's be real for a minute. Nobody likes complaining. Complaining is a nasty word. It's got negative connotation and we complain because something's bothering us. I want to, I want to flip the script. (laughs) I don't want to call it complaining. I want to call it reporting. We're reporting what we feel. It's, it's not, to me, a complaint is when you do some, when, when it's, when it's annoying, like complaining that like my sweater is itchy, that's a complaint. <laughs> Reporting that I can't breathe properly is a report of a bodily function. 
that is serious. And I just think the word complain makes us as social creatures. We don't want to complain. I was fine with my air quotes until I went into the hospital and they're like, we got no more treatments for you. It's, it's transplant or nothing. Like I didn't complain because I didn't want to be a complainer and I didn't want to be a whiner. So I just said, I'm fine. So honest reporting and communication with our family, our friends, our coworkers, it's reporting. I'm having a rough day physically. I'm reporting in and be done with it. And I think if we help them understand that we're reporting, not complaining, maybe they take the information a little bit differently too, that you're not looking for attention. You're not looking for sympathy. You're just letting them know, this is my challenge right now. And I am having this experience. And it's not a complaint. It's a report. Does that make sense, Ed? That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you're just, you know, you're just being honest with your, your spouse or your partner. Hey, this is how I feel today. You know, I'm just letting you know I'm having a bad day. I can't, you know, you have to be honest. Like I, there's some days with HCM where you just don't have any energy at all. And you just have to be honest with your loved one and say, look, I'm sorry. I, I just can't be much help today. I need to lay on the couch. So you have to be honest and, uh, but you, you have to be mindful of how you frame it all. So you don't want to, you know, you don't want to spark a fight or get to that point, but uh, hopefully your spouse or loved ones or friends are understanding because uh, that's really important. I couldn't agree more. So uh, I, I thought about that complaining work, word last week and it's been rattling in my mind. So I've said it out loud to the world and now maybe everybody will report rather than complain. Uh, I'm going to use that from now on. Even in doctor's reports, patient complains of. And when you're reading it as a patient, you're like, did I sound like I was complaining? I was just reporting. Um, So maybe reports. Yeah, it makes you look bad. You know, it's like, I'm just letting you know how I feel. I'm not complaining. Just Just state in fact, this is my reality. So what are your, I didn't tell you about this one. What are your hopes for your fellow HCM patients out there? I hope that I hope a lot of people can seek relief from this new class of drugs, you know, Camzios and the, and its competitors. I really hope that this just is a game changer for for you know HCM patients, and uh, I hope you know I hope there's more diagnosis also because it's a it's apparently very underdiagnosed. So you hope that more people, cause I mean, there's, there's people like us out there right now that aren't getting diagnosed and maybe will never be diagnosed. I, I can't imagine living in my sixties or seventies, not knowing that I have this, you know? So I hope that more people get diagnosed and I hope that this class of drugs uh, improves a lot of lives. And I hope this is just the beginning you know, more, uh, you hope in the future that there's more drugs and, and more solutions and the center of, uh, of excellence is they're, they're, they, I'm sure they'll just get better through time with research and knowledge. I mean, I, I think it's only been 60 years since the first diagnosis of HCM. So it's, it's, it's amazing what the next 20 years could bring. Yes. And the first patient ever diagnosed with HCM 
was with us until January of this year. And he was in his mid eighties when he passed away. So he was 20 something diagnosed and he, he had the full run. He did the whole, he did the whole race. That's amazing. Which is pretty amazing. We all should be Claude. Claude Brady was his name. And if you ever see me post, be a Claude, be Claude Brady. He ran the whole race. Okay. So we're going to wrap up with you in just a minute. And I just have a couple of comments and announcements because of the date. Um, And there's two things that are significant about this time period on the calendar. Um, First of all, it's the first year that like we as a nation are celebrating Juneteenth, Juneteenth, sorry. Um, And I think celebrating is the wrong word. I think commemorating is a more appropriate word. And I want to be cognizant of its meaning. And, you know, we're all kind of learning um, some new chapters of history that were not quite elucidated during our education in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And uh, I'm glad that we're correcting that oversight. And for those who are unclear, and I'm probably not a scholar here, so I'm going to tell you how I understand it, um, that we obviously know slavery was abolished in this nation, but we didn't have the internet and we didn't have ways of communicating to everybody quickly that the change had happened. So it took a number of years for everybody to be informed that slavery was no longer legal and that they were, they were free. And it's kind of a beautiful thing. It's a freedom day. It's, it's a, a freedom from bondage. And I think I can't help but always kind of look at where I am in my world and, and see connections. So on this day where it took a long time to get a message out to provide people with freedom and a voice, I kind of see HCM patients and our community in a similar space where we're finally getting to a point where maybe there's some new therapies and access to care, access to myectomies, access to other therapies, not only the brandy new ones, but due to center of excellence growth and awareness, patients won't be lost so long and we'll be able to get them on track faster. Um, So I make the connection that maybe we're entering a period of more freedom for our patients as well. And um, I wanna double down and say that our efforts on health equity in HCM are, are going to ramp up over the next couple of months. It's critically important to us as a community that everybody get diagnosed regardless of where in the country they are, rural, suburban, urban, whether they're Black, white, Asian, Native American, we want everybody to be treated with the dignity and respect uh, that they deserve and that they should demand. Uh, So we're going to be working on that. Secondarily, to me, this is almost like New Year's Day. Um, June 12th was the anniversary of my sister's cardiac arrest. And June 16th is a double anniversary for me. Um, It was the date of my sister's passing. And five years previous to that, I had survived a stroke on that day. So I get a little emotional around this time for lots of different reasons, but that's June 16th. Today is June 17th. So I tend to spend the last five days every year for the past 27 years reflecting and thinking about where we are as an organization compared to where we were 27 years ago. My stroke 32 years ago was a result of misunderstanding hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which led to no antibiotics before my dental work, which led to endocarditis, 
and I'm partially blind in one eye and I have brain damage um, because of that. Five years later, my sister was mismanaged with her HCM and succumbed to a cardiac arrest from amyotrone toxicity, mismanagement. And I've spent the last 27 years of my life to help develop programs and education so that nobody goes down the path that I went down and my sister went down. So it is June 17th, which means new year for me, fresh start, reinvigorated, lots of cool things going to be happening. We've um, just made another acquisition to our team. A gentleman named Cody will be joining us as our social media person. So you're going to see our social media really explode. Can't wait to get Cody on board with us. And we have so many new medical education partners coming up. Um, we're going to be doing a great new project with the American Heart Association. Lots of good things are coming to HCM people. And you know why a lot of it happened? Because my sister Lori didn't make it. And because she didn't make it, that makes me want to make sure that nobody else knows how bad it feels when you lose your sister too young or any family member. I know we can't stop it all. And we can't take away the pain from those of you who've also lost people. But I'm committed to the cause for another 27 years or so. And uh, we'll, we'll all grow this together. So I encourage you all to sign up as volunteers so that we can help get the HCM Act passed in many states. And that you come on and share your story like Ed did with us here today. Ed, any final thoughts? This is your moment. No, uh, just thanks. Thanks again for... Uh you know, everything you do. Thanks for uh, getting me involved with the UPenn Center of Excellence, which will, you know, and the, and the drug trial. So thanks a lot. Uh, you've made a huge impact in my life and thanks for everything you do. And hopefully, uh, you know, we start to see uh, a new era and get a lot of relief for a lot of people with HCM. And, and, and thanks a lot for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. And Okay, so for anybody who's considering participating in Share Your Story, was it stressful? Was it fun? Tell the dirt. It was stressful and fun. Yeah, a little stress. Um, my first podcast, oh. but uh, it, it was fun. Good times. And Good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad I did it. It's a nice little conversation, and maybe a couple thousand people will listen to us at some point and maybe take a little word of wisdom away from this. and. I think if there's any big take-home messages is it's, it's, it's okay to be brave and admit that you're brave. It's okay to admit you need some support from your family members. It's okay to be nervous about a, a therapy. Um, and maybe you should have listened a little sooner on the ICD thing, but maybe not. Yeah, definitely get the ICD as soon as possible. That was, that, that's a huge takeaway. Yeah, fantastic. Ed, thanks for joining us today. And thanks for everybody who's listening on Tales from the Heart. As a programming note, next week, I will be here with um, Dr. Stephen Amon from the Mayo Clinic. And we'll be discussing exercise in HCM as it is June and our theme for the month is exercise. So we'll be talking a little bit about shared decision-making and making sure that you have a good plan for yourself and how to communicate with your healthcare provider. Thank you so much for joining us today and have a great uh, weekend. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org. Become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, 
patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free, and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at thehcmacademy.com. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Austin Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org Monday through Friday? Almost every day you can find a discussion group, whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, pre-myectomy, screening your family. There's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups moderated by a peer volunteer and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org. Just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific. 